So the day before we left uh, to go out of town, I was at Parnassus Bookstore, uh, one of my favorite spots, doing what I always do in there. I was, I was browsing the, the nonfiction new release section, and a book caught my eye. The book is titled The Good Life, and it's written by Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz, who are involved with the Harvard Happiness Study that's been going on for about a century. Um, I have followed this research over the years. They've published different books about it. Um, and so one of the questions that they're asking is, what is it that makes for a happy and fulfilling life? What is it that makes for a good life? And, and now the study is getting into the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of the original people that were, uh, were, that were surveyed back in the 1920s and 1930s. JFK was somebody who was in the original study as a graduate of Harvard College. And so they're trying to figure out what is it in life that, 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 that brings us happiness? What is it that brings us meaning and fulfillment? In this book, they're basically saying, what is the good life? How would you answer that? What is the good life? And this is what they say at the very beginning. The good life is joyful and challenging, full of love and full of pain. The good life doesn't just happen, but it unfolds over time. It includes turmoil and calm and lightness and burdens and struggles and achievements and setbacks and leaps forward and terrible falls. Now, like I said, I've followed this project for a number of years. I've used some of it in uh, courses at, at, at Vanderbilt and also in sermons. You've heard me mention it before. But one of the conclusions that they make is that relationships make all the difference in life, no matter what stage of life you are in. It's the relationships that we have with our spouses, with our families, with our children, with our parents, with our friends, that's what determines whether or not we experience meaning and fulfillment in life. But in this book, with updated research, they actually talk about how we face different challenges at different stages of life. And they actually mention four stages. The first one is adolescence, 12 to 19. Youth wrestle with issues of identity. Who am I? What kind of person am I becoming? How do I know who I want to become? In the adolescent stage, parental figures remain necessary for support, food, rides, money, but the real action is with friendships, which are exciting, even if sometimes volatile, and can involve new levels of connection and intimacy. This is an awkward time, adolescence, and a confusing time, and a time when our young people need guidance and support. Then they mention young adulthood, and they put the age 20 to 40 on this. This is the stage when we go off to school and we begin to separate from our family of origin in different ways, getting out on our own. Young adulthood can bring about lots of anxiety as we become responsible for ourselves while also facing an uncertain path in life. Young adults often experience intense feelings of loneliness as they struggle to find meaningful work, meet a romantic partner, and find close friends. Today in the United States, many young adults live all over the country, hundreds and thousands of miles away from their families of origin. This is the stage where uh, people might meet somebody and, and, and get married and begin to build a life with their new spouse. Then they identified middle age, this resonated with me, by the way. 
ages 41 to 65. He didn't know 64 was middle age. We may have a stable work and home life and have pride in those things, but we can also feel more stress than ever before during this time. We're raising children, managing a career, taking care of aging parents, and constantly juggling the tasks of home and work life. Some people enjoy midlife and they find security in it, while others feel stagnated and even trapped by it. This represents a major inflection point, they say, when we realize that more of our life is now behind us than ahead of us. So people have midlife crises when they find themselves asking, is this all there is? Midlife gives us an opportunity to really live for other people and to find meaning and purpose. And then the fourth stage of life that, that they identify, they call later life, ages 66 and up. Old age is not simple, they conclude. Um, health can become a struggle. In this particular stage, we ask questions like, how much time do I have left? How long will I stay healthy? Have I lived a meaningful life? What will my legacy be? You see, the fewer moments that we have to look forward to in life, the more valuable they become. Past grievances and preoccupations often dissipate. We have to decide how we want to spend the remaining years that we might have left. So people in this stage, they learn to let things go that used to bother them more. They learn to not get as worked up over things that used to keep them up at night. What this Harvard study shows though, and even this new research, this new book that I would recommend to you, is that no matter what stage of life we are in, we face certain challenges. But no matter what stage of life we are in, Tending to our relationships will continue to bring us meaning and fulfillment, and that's what makes all the difference. But here's the ongoing challenge that I want to talk about today. How do we remain connected to other people in meaningful ways and not simply turn inward and rely on self? How can we remember that no matter what we're going through in life, no matter what we're dealing with, that we are not the center of the universe. Jesus puts it this way in Mark chapter eight. How can we deny self in a world where so many people are completely self-centered and self-absorbed? That's the important question when it comes to being a Christian. That's the important question when it comes to following Jesus. This is the question that many in our culture seem to be failing. Because we live in a culture that's all about promoting self, think about what's happened over the past 10 to 15 years. You got the selfie, right? You got social media posts showing off what you're doing as if everybody is interested in that, right? You got news feeds that only align with your particular political ideology or viewpoint and you don't ever have to hear anything different. You got technology that will get us anything we want at the moment that we want it. David Brooks says it this way. He says, in recent years, we have built a moral ecology around the big me, around the belief of a golden figure inside. And this has led to a rise in narcissism and self-aggrandizement. In other words, we have become a culture obsessed with self and self-desire. And it's become a problem. 
But guess what? Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus was challenging us to get over ourselves. Jesus was constantly teaching his followers to think about others, to look out for others, to help others, to serve others, to forgive others, to love others, to have compassion for others, to put others first. In our gospel reading today in Mark 8 that Justin read, he says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Friends, these words sum up what Christianity is all about. And it's these words that tell us why being a Christian in today's world is very hard. It's challenging. It's countercultural. It's going against the grain. In his book, With Love and Prayers, uh, Tony Jarvis, passed away years ago, headmaster of Roxbury Latin School, has a chapter that's called Beyond Sorf Absorption. And in the chapter, he says this, life involves a continual temptation to return to self-absorption. He says there's a great tendency in all of us to withdraw into ourselves or into a safe little clique of like-minded people, to live sheltered, claustrophobic, risk-free, boring little lives. This is often our natural inclination as human beings. But Jarvis goes on to say that the Christian faith calls us to involve ourselves in the lives of other people. It calls us to go against our natural innate tendencies of self-absorption. It calls us to care. It calls us not to just tolerate, not to just involve ourselves, but to actually love one another. Self-absorption, when it's all said and done, actually brings about misery and unhappiness. But happiness, on the other hand, only comes from self-risk, inconvenient involvement, self-sacrifice, and love. Let me say that again. Happiness in life only comes from self-risk, inconvenient involvement, self-sacrifice, and love. And so people who are selfish and narcissistic are usually not very happy people. Now, if you interact with people for a living, which is what ministers do, people that work at the church, it doesn't take long to identify those who are completely wrapped up in themselves. People that seem to only care about their situation and what you can do for them. Um, These types of folks are not interested in listening, but in talking. They're not interested in giving, but in getting. They're not interested in how they can help others because they only want to know whether or not you can help them. And if you can't help them, then they don't need you. You're irrelevant. It's been said before that there is no smaller package in life than somebody who's all wrapped up in themselves. And I think that's true. Selfish people think that the world revolves around them. And it would take us a whole other sermon series to talk about how people get to become this way. The one thing I will say is that our culture is now conditioning people to be this way. What I'd like to do this morning is I want to reflect upon these words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8. And I want to lift up a couple of phrases that he mentions that I think are so important. Because I think this is one of the most important passages in understanding Mark's gospel, which is what we're studying during Lent. But I also think it's one of the most important passages in understanding what discipleship is is, is all about. Um, Discipleship is one of Mark's key themes. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live a life 
uh, that, that, that takes Jesus at his word. So this is the first phrase that I want to lift up. Denying self. If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny self. Um, often when we hear these words, denying self, we think of giving something up. A luxury, a food, a pleasure, carbs, something for Lent, chocolate. Um, but that's only part of what Jesus is talking about here. There's nothing wrong with that. I've already failed my Lenten challenge, by the way. There's nothing wrong with trying to give something up. It's been stressful a few weeks. Soft drinks came back, okay? But William Barclay shed some light on this passage. He says, to deny oneself means in every moment of life to say no to self and yes to God. To deny oneself means finally and for all to dethrone self and enthrone God. The life of constant self-denial is the life of a constant ascent to God. Like everything in life, it's important to find balance when it comes to denying self. And many people have a hard time finding that balance. You have to do self-care. The reason the spring break is so nice for families is we need a break. <laughs> you need a time when your kids are out of school, when you don't have to go to work, when you just need a few days off to clear your head and, and get a break. But you also are called to deny self. And I think that Jesus is saying, yeah, take care of yourself, but don't live a life that's all about self. And so somewhere in the middle is the place where we're supposed to be. Second phrase, take up your cross. When I was in seminary, um, I was taking a course on Mark's gospel by a guy that was one of my favorite professors. His name was Clifton Black. He did a PhD on Mark's gospel at Duke. And, um, and so I was taking a course on Mark with Dr. Black. And I remember this. To this day, one day in class, he said, I hope one day when you are out preaching in your own churches, I hope and pray that you will not let the members of your church take this passage and water it down. What did he mean? He meant that many of the things in life that we think are crosses really are not. Not getting our way. Not getting the promotion that we were hoping for. Not living in the nicest neighborhood having to drive an older car, our kids not getting into a certain school or college, not having as much money as the family down the street. These are the things that we often try to turn into our crosses to bear. But this is not what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross. Jesus is not denying the fact that we all have hardships in life, but he's challenging us to take up the burden of sacrifice, to live for other people, to put personal ambition aside so that we can serve God and others, to realize that many of the problems that we face pale in comparison to what other people are going through in this world. Look at Ukraine. Look at Syria and Turkey after the earthquake. Look at Guatemala. Look at Swaziland, Africa. Look at people that are caught in sex trafficking operations in the United States. Look at some of the neighborhoods that we have here in our own city. You don't even have to travel across the globe to see people living in poverty. Christ is calling us to live a life of sacrifice so that we can make a difference for people who have little or nothing. And when we do that, it usually puts our problems into perspective. These words, take up your cross, appear in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Luke's gospel, he actually adds another phrase. He says, take up your cross daily. In other words, What's really important is not the great moments of sacrifice that are few and far between. It's not the isolated incidents of helping others. It's making a decision to live a life 
with a daily awareness of how we treat other people and how we can help other people. The Christian way of life is countercultural because it is a life that's concerned with others all the time and not just with self. It's not the way of the world. The world says, look out for yourself. Jesus says, look out for others. Lastly, take up your cross, deny self, take up your cross, follow me. The Christian life is one that is completely dedicated to following Jesus Christ in all that we say and all that we do. We are not committed to a preacher or a church or a political party or a cause, but to Christ. You know, I often worry that both churches and Christians are so easily sidetracked and distracted by so many things, social issues that we never resolve or have consensus on, politics, materialism and stuff, the status quo, busy schedules, conflicts. And what happens in Christianity is that it becomes a religion of convenience. It becomes a religion that fills in the gaps when we don't have something else planned. And we can all be guilty of this. But Jesus says, follow me. And that doesn't mean follow me some of the time or follow me when you feel like it or follow me when you got nothing else to do on Sunday morning, but follow me all the time. Be serious about it. Be passionate about it. Be committed. Will we fall short? Yes, because we're human and we fall short. But Jesus is very clear in this passage. It is possible for a person to gain everything by the standards of this world and then to wake up one morning completely empty and unsatisfied, completely lost and unfulfilled. And this happens all the time. We owe our entire lives to God because God is the giver of life. And we can come and go from church. We can come and go in our prayer life. We can come and go in our service to other people. But every time, Christ is always there to remind us that life is all about denying self and serving others and following him. Deny self. Take up your cross. And follow me. And guess what? You might be surprised where that path will lead you. Amen.